Good morning. I'm delighted to be with you in worship once again at Providence Reformed Church, and I would invite you to turn with me in the Lord's Word to 1 Kings chapter 19. You will recall, if you were here six weeks ago when I was last with you, that we looked at the first 18 verses of this chapter, and today I would like to bring up the end of what we know to be 1 Kings chapter 19 by considering verses 19 through 21. This qualifies as one of those sections of Scripture that I have on many occasions identified as a kind of segue or bridge text and therefore often neglected in our studies of the Word to say nothing of preaching passages like this. But as always, we are in store for not only conviction, but comfort as the Holy Spirit would use these ancient and inspired words to sanctify our souls. Elijah, as we know, is at that place where he has defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The wicked queen Jezebel in Jezreel has received word of this and has, in almost covenantal fashion, called down a curse upon herself if she does not do to Elijah within the next 24 hours what he has done to the prophets of Baal. And she doesn't even flinch. It doesn't faze her that this great miracle has taken place showcasing the fact that God alone, Yahweh, is Lord above all gods and there's very little to show for it in terms of wide-scale professions of faith. So he's escaped into the wilderness, but not so much as we saw to run from earthly royalty as to come into divine provision and fellowship once again as the Lord through his messenger equips his prophet for the next leg of the journey to be about his business and specifically in verses 15 through 17 of this chapter we are told precisely what it is that God has in store down the line and we normally look at this as kind of political housekeeping. But in verse 15, beginning there, where we're told that the Lord says to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu to be king over Israel, and Elisha to be anointed as the prophet in his place. He is setting up, through divine providence, his plan to continue the elimination of those who would worship idols. And of course, in the 18th verse, we have that wonderful promise that he will preserve those 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal and have not kissed idols, but rather have, per Psalm 2.12, kissed the Son, lest he be angry. That's the call that's upon our lives even this day in the New Covenant. And so what we have is the commencement of the ordaining or the installation not officially but we're coming into that arrow for the choosing of Elijah to succeed Elijah as prophet it's interesting we have no record of the anointing of Hazael or Jehu but we do hear of course of Elisha I think suggesting something of the preeminence of the prophetic role and how God will use Elisha because the Lord's word specifically has ordained namely in verse 16b, that he will be the next prophet to do God's bidding among his people. 
So let's now hear God's word, verses 19 through 21 of 1 Kings 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose, and he went after Elijah and assisted him. This is God's word. May he write its truths irremovably upon our hearts this day. Let's again pray. Lord, we ask for your assistance in the coming moments as we consider your word. We ask that your spirit's aid would be upon the one who preaches. We ask that he would unstop the ears of hearers that they would hear your word and that they would not merely hear, but by your grace in response to your favor that we all would be doers. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. My late friend, the Reverend John Svensson, passed away a couple of years ago of colon cancer. He was the pastor for many years of the historic First Baptist Church down in El Segundo. That older edifice is still there now and occupied by another body of believers. But I knew John for many years would often visit him in his office and one day several years ago as I did so I arrived and much to my surprise part of the walkway on the second level that connected the educational building to the main sanctuary had collapsed and they were going to have to reconstruct it. John was explaining to me what had happened. Thankfully, in the providence of God, no one was injured because it happened on a Wednesday evening. At the same time, there was an Awana meeting downstairs and an adult Bible study upstairs. Now, I didn't say anything to him because I didn't want him to feel bad about it. But on my previous visit a few months Earlier, I had walked down below that section that collapsed, and I noticed some weaknesses. I noticed there were some cracks in the beams where they met the wall, and there were some, some stains where water had come through and mildew had begun to build up. And even though I was surprised that the whole thing collapsed, in retrospect, I knew that there were signs that destruction was coming There were indications, if one merely had the eyes to see them, that the thing was going to fall down, that it would be gone, much as the case, tragically, with that high rise in Surfside, Florida, just a few days ago. Elisha assumes the mantle of prophecy here at its very earliest point, even though, as I indicated a moment ago, he's not officially Elijah's successor yet, that will come when Elijah is translated, uh, probably five or six years later as he's caught up into the heavens. But Elijah comes into the plan that God has for him here 
under a specific set of indications that destruction is coming. We've already noted it, again, in God's plan to set up certain individuals to continue the house cleaning of Baal worshippers. To, on the one hand, eradicate Israel from its sin, and on the other, be about the work of preserving very graciously per His covenant all of those who are truly His. And even though I'm going to move on to some other points, I think the focus as we begin our consideration of this significant passage is that in light of the particulars, we need at the outset to have this reality, the initial overarching purpose of Elisha's appointment, setting the stage for us, if for no other reason than the striking way in which the starting line purpose in the appointment of Elisha parallels the ultimate purpose in the appointment of the greater Elisha. That even as God has ordained one who will be His instrument in judging sin, down the line the Lord will beget one who will be His instrument in delivering from sin. You see, the twin realities of dealing justly with sin and dealing mercifully with sinners who bow the knee is always God's preeminent aim throughout time and in His creation as He redeems it. Elijah means the Lord is God. Elisha means God saves. And so we see then that we are incrementally working our way to Yeshua, the greatest, who saves, who redeems. God saves those who bow to Him by ridding their world of idolatry in Elisha's day. And even today, God saves those who bow to Him, who lean upon Christ, who exercise faith in His finished work as the one upon whom was laid all the sins of His people. And it is vital that this great news and this parallel be held over the doorframe of our study of this passage today. Now having said all of that, I suggest to you that the, the real meat and potatoes of these three verses before us has to do with something that is profound, but remarkably simple. Is that okay with you? Is it okay if we're simple in a Reformed church? Is that acceptable? And very simply this, that believers in relationship to God have in store for them, as we see in this episode in Elijah's life, a specific plan for them. I remember when I embraced the doctrines of grace at the age of 19 for the first time through the ministry of Reformed University Fellowship at Mississippi State University. And let me say, uh, the reason I'm wearing a maroon shirt today is that my beloved alma mater won the College World Series this past Wednesday. And I mention that as necessary only because you need to know that the preacher is happy. And I think it's important for the listeners to know that the heart of the preacher is glad. But having said that, 
I used to sit around with my friends on the campus as we studied Reformed doctrine, and we would begin to consider statements that we'd heard from other well-intentioned ministries in our midst that would go something like this. One of a very popular campus ministry for many years, used of the Lord mightily across America and indeed around the world. They would begin conversations for evangelism stating this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, there's a whole range of difficulties with that statement. But I have to say, we can't drain the baby with the bathwater. Even though I don't know whom God loves savingly, and I certainly don't know whether what He has for you between the time of your conversion and your glorification is wonderful, I can say one thing for certain. He does have a plan for all who trust Him. That cannot be denied. To think that from all eternity past, there is a set, objective, intentional, eternally prescribed objective for your life as you follow Him. God has not saved you to shelve you. He has not brought you into His family to have you continue to pursue your wants and desires, but rather as He fashions your heart after His to be His instrument in the accomplishment of His purposes for His glory and for the good of your neighbors. That we may serve Him knowing that our souls will be sanctified. And we are eyewitnesses here to an account in which the commencement of Elisha's plan, as God reveals it to him, is underway. We have a case study, as it were, of a plan that unfolds. And herein we see again that God has ordained the sum of all total human experiences for each of his own, and every aspect of his plan for the believer institutes what he has eternally decreed for them, whereby he accomplishes his purposes as they seek to obey him. As you walk in newness of life, as you enter into what God has ordained for you in accord with his good and perfect and acceptable will. And I simply have three points this morning, one from each verse that we have read, one from verse 19, one from verses 20 and 21a, and then a final point from verse 21b, what constitutes basically the last sentence of the chapter. First of all, we note the surprise of God's plan for you as it is revealed. The surprise for God's plan for you as it is revealed. There are many things as we move through life that we are told to expect. Some are very particular. Some are broader in scope. Some things we don't know at all. But it's interesting how you can interact with believers you know and they can talk about different things that they expected to have happen in their lives. And in fact, they did. As they align with the truth as God reveals it. We see this in Scripture as well. 
And when that comes, it often comes surprisingly. That is to say, it often comes swiftly. As William Cooper said, God's purposes will often ripen fast. And we can know and anticipate that good things are coming, but sometimes on our timetable to us, God is slow, and we begin to forget about that, such that when it happens, we're surprised, and and, and pleasantly so. But there's a suddenness, as Ralph Davis says, to the the presence of God fulfilling His promises to His people. You think of Abram in Genesis chapter 12. He had been taken there by his father, Terah, to Ur of the Chaldeans, and then suddenly along comes the Lord, and the Lord says to him, Now go from your country and your father's house to the land I will show you. He probably didn't expect that on the day that it actually occurred. Or you think of the selection of David as the next king after Saul. Samuel's gone down to Jesse's place and he's looked at all of those fine sons and he walks one right after another. But it's none of those. And he goes down to that youngest boy in the field, the ruddy one with the beautiful eyes, and in an instant says, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. David was just going about shepherding business on that whatever day that it was, probably surprised by God's plan for him as it was revealed. Or in the New Testament, for example, in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in the booth of taxes, and he said to him, follow me. Probably not something Levi was expecting. Or you think of Saul of Tarsus who persecuted Christians and was knocked down and blinded on the road to Damascus. And the Lord said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then later says, rise and enter the city in verse 6 of Acts 9 and you will be told what you are to do. There's a track record of the sovereign God coming in with an instantaneity with what you know may be coming, and it surprises you because perhaps you have turned your foci again to the left or to the right, and you may have even forgotten about it. And here is something also Cooper says, sometimes the light surprises the Christian as he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. Yes, Elisha was just about the family farm's business on another day there near Abel Mehola. It probably didn't dawn on him as he was eating breakfast that morning that Elijah would come through the fields and throw the cloak upon him, the mantle of prophecy. Can you imagine? And sometimes it won't be glamorous at first. And sometimes it won't be glamorous at all in this life. We may have to wait until glory to experience the grandiose dimensions of what God has for us as we come into it. But Elijah would come to greatness. He would be a prophet for over five decades. He would be a patriot in many respects. He would be instrumental in the bringing down of the house of Omri. He would perform many more miracles than any other prophet. He would advise more kings than any other prophet had. But it didn't start out so gloriously. It didn't start out with that kind of bling. 
No, he's got to be an apprentice for a while. Do an internship under Elijah and do some errand running for him. Do some things starting out like filmmakers who are big today and control Hollywood. Every one of them started out taking someone coffee. But Elisha's okay with that. There he is minding his own business, doing his labors, and even though greatness was a while off in the future, it did not seem to impede him from the assumption of the duties of the prophetic office as the mantle was cast upon him. And that's important that we see that because in the surprise and in the immediate response to the surprise, though there may be difficulty, I mean, after all, Ahab's war with Syria is right around the corner. Everything's not going to come up roses. But nonetheless, there seems to be an understanding in this young man's heart, who's not even 20, probably in his late teens, that even though things entail hardships along the way, the ultimate outcome is good and it is blessed. And in that being surprised by whatever God's divine intention is for you as he rolls it out in his great plan from all eternity past, it's worth it and you will experience blessing. I know a couple in their early 80s now who for 12 years managed a high-rise apartment building down in Redondo Beach. They had been there about 12, 11 and a half years, and suddenly, one Wednesday morning, two and a half years ago, as they had just begun typical hump day duties, the new manager under the owner of the building in the district came around, knocked on the door, fired them on the spot, went into the office, took the files, put them into the hands of an interim manager who was commandeering an apartment two floors up to serve as the new office, and then told them they had six weeks to vacate the premises. Wonderful Christian couple, by the way. I believe the gentleman, if I recall correctly, is an ordained minister. Well, they found a place about a month later, and they loved it. And I heard the man say this. He said it was hard when it happened, but we're thankful for it. We see it as a blessing because the work was getting very hard. The head maintenance man had retired, and they were having all kinds of problems with vendors and with irritated tenants and the like. And he said, we're happier now. And I saw them about a month ago for the first time. They looked healthier. They had more energy. They've been able to become more active in their home church. And they have a ministry to Christians in the entertainment industry on a back lot at Fox Studios. And it all began by a surprise unexpectedly on a Wednesday morning. That's the way our God works, and, and we so often wish to, to look upon this and to, to grovel somehow or to, to feel sorry for ourselves in the face of the impending doom that we surmise is coming. We don't see that there are blessings around the corner. And as we look at the God of Israel trampling out idolatry and working for the protection and preservation and establishment of His own as they have not kissed Baal, but rather have leaned upon Him. We this day see the Lord Jesus Christ 
who's trampling out the grapes of wrath, as it were, who's putting all of his and yours and my enemies under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15.25, and we see later in that chapter, ultimately to the end of raising the, the perishable to imperishable because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for which He gives thanks. Yes, these are the ingredients of the surprise of God's plan for you as it is revealed. But secondly, moving into verse 20, we note the instinctiveness for God's plan for you as it is embraced. One cannot help but be impressed with the immediacy with which the young Elisha responds. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. Now, it's easy to look at this and to think of verses like Matthew 10.37 or Luke 14.26 and Jesus going out of his way to make it known that one must love him more than father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, or, they're not, or even self, or they're not worthy to come after him. Or you might think of a passage like Luke 9, where later in that lengthy chapter, beginning in the 59th verse, there is a man, when issued the imperative by Jesus, follow me, replied that he wanted to go back and bury his father, and Jesus said, let the dead bury their own, you go and preach the kingdom of God. And yet another said to him, I will follow, but let me go home and bid my family farewell. And Jesus' response to that is his great statement, of which you're all familiar about the one putting his hand to the plow and looking back not being fit for the kingdom. And we might ask, well, what is the difference here? He wants to go home. He wants to bid adieu to his parents. Is he perhaps falling into one of these categories? Well, it seems to me that Jesus' point in Luke 9 is that many say they want to follow him, and really don't. And so they make up excuses to get around following him and obeying his commands as the one who would put his hand on the plow of working the kingdom row, but would be looking back. That's a present participle there, as if they had assumed the plow and had turned to look back and continued to do so. Not really being that serious about coming into God's plan, you see, but rather wanting to re-stir previous affections and affinities and loves of a former life. Those interests that characterized them before. When we look at Elisha, uh, we see one, I believe, who is going back to cut the home ties precisely so as not to stall entry into the Lord's service. And I think it says something about what he is giving up. As I said, he's still quite young. And the 12 oxen with which he is plowing and him being by the 12th, that's an indication that they were quite well off. Not everyone had that many oxen with which to plow. Now, he's accustomed, you see, to a certain standard of living, no doubt. And what he's saying is, I know I shall not pass this way again. I'm in, but I want to go and say my goodbyes. Then I am yours. 
then I am with you entirely. I'm committed lock, stock, and barrel to the prophetic work that God has for me. And Elijah's question to him is a bit puzzling here. We look at that and we think to ourselves, why in the world would he say to him, go back again for what have I done to you? And I think it's as if Elijah is understanding that this young man is eager to follow him in service to the Lord. And as he leads him to do so, and as he's closing the door on that chapter of his life, if this is what he needs to do, then he should be allowed to do it. We're told that he returned, and after, after having bid adieu to his parents, he goes back and sacrifices the very oxen with which he plowed, and there's a celebratory dinner. And what all of that says is, I shall not pass this way again. I'm in, and to have you know that I'm in, I'm putting everything currently and in my past behind me. So long, Mom and Dad. Let's have a dinner party. And he's gone, and he's on a new road. I love what German scholar KCWF Barr says about this. He says, Elijah was sacrificing to God that which was most precious in his former way of life, and the destruction of those yokes was a sign that he would never again come back and take up that work. You realize that you and I are created for that, that God's design is such that we should say goodbye to those things that are in the past and to embrace with fervency and zeal whatever He reveals to us on any given day that we didn't see coming. And I suggest to you that what we have in this response of Elisha is a kind of instinctiveness for that plan of God as it unfolds. In other words, there is a constraint. There is a, I can do no other in all of this. And the business that he has to take care of is not something that he is doing to get out of or to skirt what God is calling him to do, but he's preparing for it. And in so doing, he is showing you and me what it means to exercise that instinctiveness that is in the transformed nature for the will of God. Almost a magnetic field that pulls you in to have you say in the face of whatever it is with Martin Luther, I can do no other. Now, it may be a little bit of an awkward way to illustrate it, but I was having lunch with my colleague Bob Bierkus, who pastors the Church in the Canyon PCA down in Calabasas, about a year after his very serious surgery on his uh, upper spine and the stem of his brain. It's an amazing story, full recovery. Um, the surgeon inadvertently nicked one of his vocal, co- vocal cords, and it was interesting to see how over a year's time the other one began to compensate, and now he speaks, and you can't, can't tell that there was anything ever wrong. But he was explaining to me what that was like and the recovery and the pain. And he, of course, is Johnny Erickson Tata's pastor, and so being very close with her, he's quite familiar with all of her pain and the suffering that she has had 
now at 54 years, by the way, is the longest living quadriplegic in history. But paralyzed people have a lot of pain. We tend to think of them in terms of not being able to feel anything, but there's untold suffering within the nervous system that remains. And Bob looked at me talking about her pain and his physical pain, and he said to me, when you are in pain, it takes a conscious effort to be polite. And when you hurt all the time, when there's a chronic pain, you have to work at not being rude. It's labor to do the right and proper thing because your instinctiveness in that condition is to, to snap at someone or to moan or to complain. And what we have with Elijah is him showing us that for the one who is obedient to God, who is set all of his sights upon doing the Lord's work. He or she has to, to work not to react with immediacy to the call. You have to go out of your way not to respond because it's that instinctive. It's that natural in the current and new state of being in right relationship with the true and living God. Now, sometimes we know by virtue of indwelling sin that instinctiveness can become dull. We need to be exhorted to remain in. Jesus says in John 15, verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. That's a very awkward sentence in the Greek because you have this imperative and it seems to apply to Christ as well, and, uh, upon prima facie reading, it, it's almost as if it says, abide in me and have me abide in you. But what Jesus is saying, I believe, is the sum total of what other apostles such as Paul and Peter have pressed home to the saints of God as well. Make your calling and election sure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work within you to do and to will for His good purpose. Yes, there's this natural, and I use that in quotes, as the new heart comes forth to embrace God's plan for it, inclination and instinction toward following God. But there's a pull uh, back to the old man, and we must exhort ourselves constantly to abide in Him, to remain in Him. Be in Me. That's what that means. You've heard the old saying, in Romans chapter 12, where Paul says to present your bodies a living sacrifice, the old saying is what? Living sacrifices have a tendency to crawl right off the altar. And so there's this instinctiveness for the plan, uh, but it, it must be constantly pressed by the grace of God to remain in, that is your constitution, such that whatever plan He has for you, and He will have many plans, M-A-N-Y. He may have many plans, M-I-N-I. But you're ready to go because the instinctiveness is there and it is urged on by the pursuit of holiness and the exercising of the outward and ordinary means of grace. And you remind yourself again that because you are His, you can do no other. He will enable you to obey. But I need to hear in my hardness of heart and my coldness toward God, come back 
keep leaning into me. Keep your eyes upon me and know that you must do my bidding because you are mine and I have bought you with the price of my own son's blood. I have a first cousin, my father's sister's son, who is an ordained Baptist minister of music. He's the only other minister down both sides of my family as far as you could see. I haven't seen him in several years now. The last time I saw him was at his father's funeral. I happened to be in the providence of God nearby when my Uncle John died, and I attended the funeral. It was quite a reunion. I saw cousins that I had not seen in some time. And Brian preached a wonderful Christ-centered message. It was a testament to the grace of God. And I was kind of at a crossroads at that point. This was 2009, and I was finishing my doctoral studies. I didn't know exactly what was around the corner, and that was posing certain anxieties within my life. And I was so appreciative of some of the things that he had said. And when I was back home at my father's house a couple of days later, I decided to shoot him an email and and tell him that. Preachers always appreciate that kind of thing. And he wrote back and he said this, and I still have this in my inbox after 12 years. And when I reread it the other day, I understood why I had kept it. Hey, Jared, great to see you the other day as well, despite the circumstances I'm glad we'll be able to keep in touch, and I'm blessed to know that something I shared ministered to you. It's only because of what God has done for me and taught me. God is at work, and you just need to stay the course. There are many things that the Lord will call His servants to do or not to do or to endure that others will not understand just by virtue of the fact that they are not asked to do those things. Therefore, they do not understand. But Charles Spurgeon once said that you cannot lead someone on a journey that you have not been on. Then he said this, and this is what really touched me. Jesus is your Lord and Master. You must obey Him despite whatever else comes your way. Yes, the Lord desires us to receive counsel from others and get wisdom where we can, but ultimately it comes down to obedience, even if what we are led to do is contrary to what others might think. Above all, stay the course. You are on the right track. I love you in Jesus and consider it a blessing to have you as a friend. Keep in touch, and we will do the same. Brian, Jesus is your Lord and Master, and you must obey Him. That's what we see functionally in the life of the young Elisha, a forerunner to Jesus, whom we must obey. There's precision in what he does here as he exhibits the instinctiveness for the things of God. I'll follow you. Let me go kiss mother and father. Let me have one last dinner with my people. And I'm all in. That is the instinctiveness for God's plan as you embrace it. But then finally, coming to the very end, we have the humility from God's 
plan as it is implemented. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. I've always contended that humility is something that God works in you, that it primarily has a passivity to it. By that I mean it's not something that you and I muster up the smarts or the inclinations to form about ourselves, but no, you are made humble by virtue of the humiliation that you endure. And that's very Christ-like, even as he came and was born in a low condition in a smelly stable and came under the power of the law and lived his entire life on earth, subjecting himself all of the fallenness in his created order. And, and I believe we need to understand that lest we fall into the trap of asking God to humble us because I don't think we want God to humble us. We, we really couldn't stand that. But he will give you the grace for what I have just said to obey that great imperative that we find in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. You don't want Him to do it, but it's something He calls you to do, and you can when you are willing to undergo all of those sacrifices and pains and groans and griefs and fears that are widely known in this life that will be absent totally in the next. Precisely because that's what He has done. And in all of His glory and everything that He brings at the incarnation from out of the eternal redemptive covenant, His eternal oneness and sameness with the Father and the Spirit and the sweetness of the fellowship that they enjoyed, to not consider equality with God something to be grasped something to be clung to, but emptying Himself. Therefore, we must empty ourselves. That's godly humility. And you see Elisha doing that. And it comes in one simple word. He went after Elijah and assisted him. That's very formal language for he, for a while then, became the prophetic lackey. He did the minor deeds. He didn't start at the top, as we say in our American culture. He worked his way through this apprenticeship. 2 Kings 3.11 tells us that he washed Elijah's hands. Probably didn't enjoy that too much. He'd given up all those 24 fine oxen, 12 pair. He's gone down into kingdom work, but then it will rise. Then it will come back up again, and he will be known for His greatness and all of those things that I mentioned before. And the question before us is, are we willing to humble ourselves? Are we, as we come into God's plan for us and in His kingdom, do we assist Him? Do we leave our past, even if it was a better past, and do we aid Him? I once talked to a man and he was talking about his personal assistant. And I, 
he asked me what I did. I said, I'm a minister. And he said, oh, well, you're Jesus' personal assistant. I thought, oh, isn't that cheesy? But there's some truth to that. We're all ambassadors for Jesus. We work on His behalf. We represent Him in the world. We assist Him daily, the greater Elijah, as we serve under His prophetic authority, His kingly authority, and His authority as our God. And it may not be glamorous, as I said, it may be inglorious. But nonetheless, Elisha was found within the eye of God's will for him in this call, this distinct summons upon his life. And that's all that mattered to him. God's plan for his chosen one's life. And if we want peace when it's all over, we need to be found therein. Those in our history books, in our minds, were famous. But in their day, they were not. We love Calvin, but Calvin wasn't loved. We love Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards wasn't loved. He was kicked out of his church in New England. The only greatness to be found is in kingdom endeavors. And that is found in our assistance. To our king. Jim Elliott, the great missionary to the Aka Indians in Ecuador, who was put to death at the age of 29 on January 8, 1956, leaving behind a wife and a two-year-old daughter, once famously said, as you know, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What a great statement. It is so wise to give up the life you know you can't keep to gain the life you know you can never lose in Jesus. But Mr. Elliot actually, I found out later, had a collection of sayings. He apparently had journaled, and some of these were collected. And I fell privy to another of them recently, in which Mr. Elliot said this as he served facing death every day and one day was surprised by it. He said, once you've determined that something is the will of God, once you know that something is God's plan for you, be all over it. And once you come to that realization, yes, this is what must prevail. This is what must happen in my life as I follow God Almighty and serve Him all of my days. Be all over it. Be all in. Give it 110%. Don't throttle back at all. Don't put your hand on the plow and look back at the things of this world. Don't go back to the house to kiss mom and dad in, in some attempt to get out of what God has for you. When you see it, and when He makes it clear by His Word and Spirit what you're to be doing, be all over it. After all, isn't that what we see at this table as we meet the greater Elisha? That even as Elisha washed Elijah's hands, the greater Elijah washed his followers' feet. 
that he saw the likes of you and me and in his infinite mercy and love deemed us worth saving. And for the joy set before him, he was all over it. That is the ultimate plan for the believer's life. That all who look to Him in faith, and all who follow and orient their lives toward doing His will for His glory and for the good of their neighbors. You and I are meant for that. We were fashioned in our mother's wombs as the elect of God and as He persuaded and enabled us to embrace Christ as freely offered in the Gospel That is why we exist. So may we be attuned to what He has for us. May we be eager. May we say we cannot but do what the Lord is calling me to do because it's worth it. And the things of this world will pass away and will not matter but eternal things will last and will last for the glory of God. Ours is a God worth serving with our whole heart and all of our lives. So let us look at this needy world. Let us pray. Let us labor while it is day. Let us serve Him with gladness. Let us be all over it. Let us prepare our hearts to sup with the Lord by the employment of this great hymn of Stuart Hines just 70 years ago. How great thou art.